And now, a Blaze Media podcast. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. Today's another special show, and I'm going to ask you to to bear with me because we're going to talk about a topic that you've probably heard a lot about the last 24, 48 hours. And that's Russia. That's the situation in Ukraine. But I'm going to ask you not to switch off because you might be tempted to go, Oh, John, I've heard so much about that. I've had enough of it. I'm going to ask you to stay with me. Because I have a different take. I'm going to give you a lot of homework this show. And when I say homework, I'm going to give you a lot of things to think about. Because in my opinion, one of the problems that we face as a nation, and also as a world, is we don't have discussions anymore. We don't ask principal questions. In fact, we've gone so 180 that we hate people who ask questions. Because if you ask the question, it makes you think. And it's so much easier to have a side. It's so much easier to just blame someone else. So what is the unusual take on Russia? Well, before I get to Russia and Ukraine and exactly what is happening there and talking about U.S. foreign policy, I need to lay the foundation for you. What is the first problem that we have in society? Well, without getting too far off topic, we have lost linguistics. Now, I know you're probably going, why is the guy that can't distinguish between the number tree and the tree coming out of the ground talking to me about linguistics? Because we have lost the meaning of words. We have lost the meaning of what things mean and the natural order of the world. Case in point, what we consider a leader today. If I ask most people on the street, you know those man-on-the-video streets where they man-on-the-street videos, you know, Amy Arrowitz does them in New York and different shows do them at different times. I've seen some of them on YouTube where they'll go and they'll talk, just random strangers, and they'll ask them a series of questions. And usually they're done with the emphasis of making people look dumb because people give dumb answers and they're so hilariously dumb they're actually funny. But if I was to do one of those videos and said, give me a definition or a person who you think is a leader. The vast majority of times, people would give a leader in politics. Joe Biden. 
President Donald Trump. I might give a leader like this. Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts. We have, in our world in 2022, confused and conflated leadership with power. Let me be crystal clear, and this is my opinion. You cannot be a leader, a real leader, if you have power. There is a difference. Leaders lead. People with power compel. We have conflated those two to mean the exact same thing. And I'm going to prove it to you. Because I did some research. I got onto the, the interwebs. And I did some Googling. And the first thing I Googled was the definition of a leader. And of course, it comes up with loads of different things, but the definition that was pretty unanimous between all the websites I looked at was some definition of the following. A person who leads or commands a group, an organization, or a country. And they gave some examples. Leader of the house. Leader of parliaments. All political. And then I did more research. And I'm getting to a point. I just ask you to bear with me. Give me some latitude. I then Googled, give me some attributes, some skills that leaders possess. Now, bearing in mind, the definition said someone who leads or commands a group, organization, or country. These are the skills that I found. To inspire and motivate. Do you think a leader, good leader does that? To communicate and listen. To display integrity. To innovate and create. To commit completely. To influence and persuade. To develop and delegate. Have a clear vision. Display self-belief. And challenge and take risks. There's some definitions of leadership. Do you notice the difference? Go through the leadership skills I just said. And ask yourself, which of them requires to be a leader or requires someone to have power? Do you need to have power and position to inspire and motivate people? How about to communicate and listen? To display integrity, do you need power and leadership to do that? Power and position? Innovate and create, do you need power to do that? Commit completely to do your task? Does that need power? To influence and persuade. That's the first one you might go, maybe you do need a bit of power. Because, you know, if a president and me, i.e. John, the, the podcaster, a speaker, tries to influence, you know, the position will have more influence than I will. To develop and delegate. Okay, you need some power to delegate. To have a clear vision. Again, maybe. To display self-belief. You don't need power for that. And to challenge and to take risks. Again, you don't need power for that. So of those ten, three, maybe four, maybe max five, you need some power. Why is there a difference? Because leadership and leaders, the definition has changed. And I'm going to prove it to you by giving you some examples. I'll give you the first example. Sports. 
Whether you love sports or hate sports, we all know someone who plays it. We either watch it, we play it ourselves, or our kids play it. Think of your sports team. In an ideal world right now, if this is a normal world, we'd be talking about baseball right now. Spring training would be upon us. We'd be getting ready for the Grapefruit League, and we'd be talking about a month away, just over a month from opening day of baseball. Obviously, we don't live in a normal world, and there's a lockout. And who knows when baseball will start. But in baseball, there's two positions. It's not pitcher and catcher and first baseman, second baseman. Don't worry about that. There are two usual positions, a captain and a manager. Which one of them is a leader? And do you understand the difference? You see, the manager is a leader, and he has the power to back it up. But the captain sometimes is the most influential person on the team. Because the captain is a player. A captain can't hire and fire. A captain can't drop you from the lineup. manager can do that because they have the power to do it. Captain can't. But if you don't have the captain on side, a captain has no real power. He might have influence. He might have a say. His opinion might be given more credence than other people's. Than just an average position player. But he has no power. She has no power. But yet, ask yourself this. If a captain has no power, and the manager does, is it possible for a team to be successful when the captain and the manager are not in unison? When they're not acting as one? Is it possible for a team to be successful if the captain hates the manager and vice versa? You see, leadership used to mean you led by example. Sometimes that meant you had power and sometimes it didn't. The power question was up to the individual. Was up to the position of the individual. But leadership, qualities, are about the person. You don't have to have power to be a leader. Looking through some examples, Christianity is a prime example of you can be a leader but you don't need power. You know, what's funny is the more I research and the more I read history and the more I study what's going on in the world, we seem to make the same mistake over and over and over again. Because everything I have just spoken about is not a new problem. It's easy to be blinded by history when we deliver us. The kind of thing, the problems we face today have never been faced before. While that's true in the sense of the, advers- the adversaries that we face or the issues or the, the criteria that we face, the underlying principles are always the same. It's usually about people, power, money, greed. Or just thinking you're better. This problem of conflating leadership with leaders and power is not a new one. It's actually in the Bible. You see, one of the reasons, without getting off track, is we we do need to discuss what's going on in Ukraine, and we do need to discuss America's involvement. But one of the reasons the Jews rejected Jesus is because they believed, by reading scriptures, they were getting a warrior. They were getting a great equalizer, because the Jewish people had been tortured and tormented by man. They believed that when 
God's son was coming. He would come on a chariot. He would come with a shield and a sword. He would come to right all the wrongs in society. They believed change came with an army, with swords. Then Jesus comes along. And I say this always to understand and to under- explain to people's opinion and to understand how people think. If you were Jewish and that is what you were thought and that's what you believed, how disappointed would you be with Jesus? If you believed that this powerful person was coming, the Son of God was coming to rescue you. And then Jesus comes with long hair and a beard and a one-piece shawl and sandals and says, love one another. That must be an epic disappointment. That's not the only time leadership and leaders and power is mentioned in the Bible. There are many others. But I want to talk to you about the second one because it relates to people. You see, the disciples, the people who lived with Jesus, the people who arguably knew Jesus better than anyone else, even his family, because they spent days and weeks and nights with him, they listened to his parables, they got to ask him questions about what the parables meant in private. They understood their role after Jesus was crucified. They were to go and share the good news. But they made the mistake that we have just been discussing as well. Because they believed they needed power and authority to teach the good news. They believed that Jesus needed to do something for them. To give them that power and authority to teach. To inspire a generation. To inspire people to become Christians. The term we now know. And all they needed was not the power from man. It was not the authority. It was not a position. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of leadership. The power to verbalize. You see this on many occasions throughout the Bible. But one of them is where all the Jews come and they see the teachings being taught in their own tongue. Power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not easy to believe in leadership. Because leadership always will make you think you need power to enforce your will. Real leaders don't need power. They lead by example. Let me share some of the historical examples with you. Just from America. People like Billy Graham. Think Billy Graham had an influence on your society? Yet what power did Billy Graham actually hold? If you dismissed Billy Graham, if Billy Graham was preaching near you and you went, that is the biggest load of baloney I have ever heard, did Billy Graham have the power to compel you to listen? Did he have the power to say, you will sit down and listen to what I have to say or I will put you in jail and take your stuff? Nope. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, We speak about him on this show a lot. What power did he possess? What power did he have? 
if you didn't listen to him, if you dismissed him, if you demeaned him, heck, even if you assaulted him, which many people did, and people connected to him, did he have the power over you to be get his vengeance, to make you listen to him, to make you submit to his will, to make you listen to his speeches? Nope. But yet he is a person who influenced our society. People like Rosa Parks. It's Black History Month in your country. And while I hate the term Black History Month, let us talk about Rosa Parks. And the reason I hate Black History Month is because black history in America deserves more than a month. History in America is about all races, all good and all bad and everything in between. This idea that you can have one month dedicated to black history. Black history is American history. But Rosa Parks, that lady who had the audacity to say, I will ride up the front of the bus. There's no shortage of seats. Did she have any power? If anyone dismissed or demeaned her, did she have the power to be her vengeance? To get enact vengeance? Did she have the power even to stand up for herself? Or was she treated as a second class citizen? She had leadership. She was a leader. The gentleman, because we're going to talk about foreign policy in the next, next part of the show. The person who had the audacity to face down the tanks in that totalitarian regime called China in Tiananmen Square when he stepped face to face with a tank. What power did he have? Did he have the power? Did he have the, the leader of China on the phone saying, you will not let this tank pass? Nope. Yet it didn't. But bringing it back to history, as I always do, I want to share a story with you and explain the difference between power and leadership. General George Washington. How often when I talk about leadership and when I want to talk about great Americans, do I respond with General George Washington? And I apologize if this annoys some people or some people are getting sick and tired about the George Washington stories, but we must learn from them. See, General George Washington was the general who won the Revolutionary War. Without him, General George Washington, without George Washington, full period, full stop, there is no America. But after winning the Revolutionary War, he could have had that power. He could have had the ring of power. He could have said, without me, there is no America. Now submit to my will. Kiss the ring and bow before me. He didn't. He went home. Leadership. But then it's 11 years later. It's 1787. It's Philadelphia. The war is a distant memory. Or maybe just a memory for some. And the Constitutional Convention is in crisis. And they come to an agreement after agreeing on very little. But they said, we need General George Washington. Call for him. So they send the rider through the night. And the rider knocks on the door. General Washington, 
The Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia is in crisis. You, sir, are needed. I always love telling this part of the story, even though it has nothing to do with the, the leadership part. His response. Think about how your politician, if they were summoned today, saying, we can't do this without you, how they would respond. Of course you couldn't do it without me. I'm the great General George Washington. There'd be press releases and press ops and photo ops and shaking of hands and podiums and suits. George Washington responds, my God, what more does my country demand of me? But then he gets to Philadelphia. He didn't have any power. Yes, he was the great general, but he didn't have any power, real power there. It wasn't like he was coming in as the supreme leader and everyone would get in line. But how did he act after being called and told, we can't do this without you? You would think he'd be involved. You would think he would roll up his sleeves and be part of every discussion, be a leader, get involved. Nope. He said nothing. He just paced the walls, paced the, the, the floors. He would sit and listen to debates, but he would never say anything. He just brought an aura of calm. He knew his place. Until one day there's a debate and it's going nowhere. And he rises up. And this is real leadership. Because even though he had no power, no position, no way to compel and enforce his will when he stood up the whole room went silent why because everyone looked to him to be the leader everyone looked to him for the characteristics of a man of how you should act and he stood up and he issued those famous famous words words that need to be remembered today let us raise to a standard to which the wise and honest can repair the rest is in the hands of God. You see, we have, if we're going to start solving our problems, we need leaders. And I don't mean we need more people with power. Look around at America today. Look around at our wonderful, amazing nation. But look at all its flaws. Do we need any more powerful leaders? Is the problem in America that we don't have enough people with power or is the problem that we have too many people with power? Look around at the world. Is there any shortage of tyrants? Is there any shortage of people who want to use power to enforce and compel people to act the way they think you should act? Do we have a shortage of that or do we have an abundance of that? Look around at the world, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Europe, whether it's Ireland, whether it's America, whether it's New Zealand, whether it's Australia. Do we have an abundance or a shortage of people who want to tell you how you can act, who believe they have some power to encroach in your God-given rights? What is the problem in America and the world today? Do we have an abundance and a shortage of power? Or do we have an abundance and shortage of people who want to lead? 
because this is the last point I make on this foundational point. America talks about being a Christian nation. What does the Bible say about leadership? Let he who is first be last and last who is first. Let he who wants to lead must learn first to serve. We don't have a problem with power in our country. Actually, we do. We have a problem with too much power. We have a problem and a shortage of real leaders who are willing to serve and be last. Before we get to America's foreign policy, I want to apologize for not sounding the best today. I'm, I don't know if it comes across in the microphone, but I'm not feeling great. Um, I'm over COVID. I'm, I'm COVID free, but man, it's it's just done a number on my lungs, and I've been coughing and just been just not feeling great for for about a month now since I've come back from the border. Um, I just and I just cannot shake the last bit of it, and I just woke up this morning really sick, coughing, and then my chest is sore and. So I apologize for not sounding, you know, my my usual average best. So that's the foundation of today's show, leadership. What we look for in people. Now I want to bring you to what's going on in the world. Because people are talking about this being the start of World War III. We'll deal with that in a minute. What goes on in Europe? With Russia, with Ukraine. And what is America's role in it? Well, before we can actually discuss that, we need to take a step back and actually ask ourselves some tough questions. America's foreign policy, what is it? Is there a clear vision of your foreign policy? Has there been one in the last year, two years? Has been one in the last five years or ten years. Where is the line in the sand? Remember Obama's famous red line, and then he would, you know, move it and push it back even further when it came to Syria. This is the red line. It turned out it wasn't a red line. And is it consistent? You see, I say this with all the love, and I love your country, and I love the idea of America. I work hard to promote it. I work behind the scenes to ask people questions, to to consult with people. But one of the problems that we have, both in America but also around the world today, is we have become so tribal, so partisan, that there's only ever two answers. And when you say something that isn't totally 100% consistent and pure, with what one of those two answers is, you are the enemy. When it comes to foreign policy, especially in America, these are the terms that you get, you have. You have one side that is the hawks, that America is the world police, and that anyone that gets out of line, America should bomb. You have the military-industrial complex. And then on the other side of the aisle, you have the isolationists. The people who just want to leave the world alone. The people who believe in America is not the world policeman and that we should not shed any more of our brothers and sisters' blood in the military overseas. Which of those two is right? 
Which of those two is more consistent? You see, the problem with those two principles, philosophies, ideas, whatever word you want to use them, is I don't belong to either camp, and I guarantee you the vast majority of Americans don't. You see, I make no mistake about it. I'm very clear, and I'll share my opinion on American foreign policy. My American foreign policy has been consistent for the longest time. I don't want America to be the world police. I don't want America to be involved in inv invading other different nations, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Ukraine. But what I do believe, and I believe this not just as an American principle, but as a worldwide principle, that we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters overseas. And that if there is a clear and defined threat, swift and prompt and powerful action must be had. You see, some of my biggest disagreements with your foreign policy over the last 5, 10, 20 years, specifically in the Middle East, has been this nation-building concept. This concept that the American military should be there indefinitely. I believe that there is a time for American military to be involved, but when it is, it is to be unleashed to its fullest capabilities to squash whatever threat we have and then come home. And dare I say it, because I am Mr. Constitution, that that decision relies solely on the president going to Congress and asking them to declare war and Congress granting authorization for such a war. There is a constitutional process that must be respected. It's not just done by one body or the other. But my frustration is, when I say this to people, people will go, well, that sounds very hawkish to me. Really? Really? That's your answer to what I just said. I just laid out a foreign policy. Even if you disagree with every aspect of what I said, you cannot say I am hawkish. There are many accusations you can allege against me. Some are true and some are not true, but there are many. The idea that I'm a hawk is laughable. I'm not looking to bomb people. But my frustration also comes with the other side of the aisle who will say, who say I sound hawkish. Who says, well, look, you know, we shouldn't spread any, or we shouldn't have any more American bloods shed overseas. That America should mind its own business. My frustration with that is it sounds great and it sounds so appealing, but what world do you live in? Because I'm going to play out a scenario to you. And this is a real life scenario that's happening and has started right now. Where's your line in the sand? Are you always that of, of that opinion that America should never be involved? And you see, here's my frustration with my libertarian friends. They never, ever tell you what their line in the sand is. You may not want to get involved for a very long time. Okay, that's fine. That doesn't make you a bad person, but saying what I said doesn't make me a hawk. I dare say the opinion I have will be probably shared with the vast majority of Americans. By the way, full disclosure before I share what I'm about to share with my libertarian friends. Maybe I am blinded by my bias. 
than Irish on this issue. I fully admit my biases and when I could be wrong. I have blind spots like everyone has blind spots. But the reason I support the American military is because there's a reason people like me don't speak German and it is because of the American military. I am so thankful for them. That is why I want swift responses. I don't believe in nation building. But I also can't say I'm an isolationist. Because if, and this may be again, I'm full disclosure, this maybe is my blind spot. That if that was the American foreign policy, I would speak German. I would probably be forced into an edu Nazi edu re-education camp. Who knows what my future would have been. But also, who knows what America's future would be. Because the thing that I get frustrated with is, to the people who say, well, America should never get involved overseas. Really? Is that your line no matter what? So the situation in Ukraine, should America get involved? That's a question for you to ask yourself. What are the stats of Ukraine? Ukraine has 45 million people and has an economy of GDP in 2021 rough, worth roughly $181 billion. That's a lot of people. Should you get involved? What happens if Putin goes in and starts massacring people? Should you get involved? What happens if he does concentration camps? Should you get involved then? What happens if he says anyone who opposed me and opposed my intervening in Ukraine should be slaughtered? Should you get involved then? What happens if he does it on religious grounds? Or is it a simple case of, well, no matter what happens in Ukraine, it's no concern of America and the world, and we don't have a role in it. Okay. What do you think is happening next after Ukraine? Likely, and this is my opinion, I could be wrong on these timings, but likely what's happening next, because the groundwork has been built, is China's going to get into Taiwan. The Olympics are over. In fact, the Chinese government, the, the Chinese foreign ministry said Taiwan is not Ukraine. And Taipei has called for the island's military units to step up vigilance around Ta the Taiwan Straits. Well, John, I don't know where Taiwan is on a map. How the hell am I supposed to? I don't care about Taiwan, really. Okay, do you know anything about Taiwan? Is there a reason you should care about Taiwan? No, I, there's no, I'm an American. They're, that's for the Taiwanese people, or whatever you call them. Let them deal with it. Okay, when you understand that Taiwan is the largest chip manufacturer in the world, does that change your opinion? That if China invades it, that there could be an, in a country right now, and a world right now that already has a supply chain crisis. The idea of a war happening in the world's largest chip manufacturer. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think the economic impact of that is going to be? But also even because Taiwan doesn't, spoiler it doesn't exactly have a great military. China will overrun them in a couple of days, maybe a week or two. Do you really think it's smart to have China automatically now be by far the biggest chip manufacturer in the world do you have any security concerns about that considering that chips are needed for your iphones for your ipads for your computers for your cars for your alexa chips are needed for everything any concerns there no okay well let's bring it back to europe 
Let's imagine a situation where Russia has invaded Ukraine and it is totally overrun them. And there's a chance, if you're listening to this maybe Sunday or Monday, there's a chance that all that has already happened. Because the Russian army is that much stronger than the Ukrainian army. On paper. In reality, it might be different. What happens next? Do you think he stops there? I want to list out a country, list the countries to you. And just put this into context. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, and the Czech Republic. These are all countries that are part of the Baltic states and that are neighboring Russia directly or indirectly via Ukraine with its new border. There's a combined 90 million people in those states with an economy of $1.7 trillion. Why did I bring up the economic figure there? Because Russia has 145 million people and a $1.6 trillion economy. And so far, everything I have heard from the leaders, quote-unquote, of the day, are talking about, well, well, if Russia does this, we're going to hurt their economy. What's going to happen? How's Russia going to deal with this? Well, the first thing it's going to do is get further in bed with China. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Just think about that for a second. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? But second of all, do you think it's going to make Putin more desperate for war? To take some of these countries? To take some of these lands? To control their economies? To get some of their taxes? To control that many more people? Or less likely? These are all small countries. Like Ukraine's got 45 million people. I think it's going to overrun it in a week if Putin really wants to. What do you think Estonia, which has 1 million people, is going to do? That won't even be a minute war. Latvia, 2 million people. Lithuania, 2 million people. Bulgaria, 7 million people. If that happens, and he overtakes all of them, should America get involved in any of those in the middle of that? Or should it just be like America has no role there as well? So let me give you some numbers, just to put this into context. If Putin overtakes all of those countries... Russia, as a Soviet Union bloc, would have its 145 million people, the 45 million people of Ukraine, and the 90 million people from Eastern Europe. That's 280 million people. That is nearly on par with America. With an economy of about $3.5 trillion. Well short of America, but nothing to be sniffed at. Now let's imagine Putin does that. And overruns all of them. Does he stop there? Or does he start looking more and more westwards? Does he go into Austria? I don't think he goes into Germany. Because the new premier is playing footsie with him. Even though they did vote for sanctions. But where does he stop? Because if you add up the next big block of countries. Austria, Italy, Germany and Switzerland. They're all heartland Europe. There's 160 million people. And the economic figures start going up rather rapidly. Those four countries have an economic value of $7.6 trillion. If he overruns those countries, it takes time. Should America get involved then? What happens if he goes after France and England? 
Are you willing just to have Putin destroy and control all of Europe? Well, America has no role. This is not a national influence. Okay, fair enough. At what point do you say America has a role? Because here's where I'll leave you with this. And again, I openly admit my biases. But one of the things I learned growing up in my education, because I always liked history when it comes to wars, was there was a question asked when I was growing up. And it was never asked in a favorable way for America because we didn't teach history in a favorable way for America because we have always hated America. I've always loved it. But when I was growing up, America was always that country. We loved it when it was a Democrat in power, but when it was a Republican in power, we didn't like it. But when we were studying World War II, one of the popular questions, and you would have this out and you'd have a debate amongst yourselves and you'd have class discussions and you'd have people taking different sides of debate and, and making a merit-based argument for both sides, was did America get involved too late? Now, my job really isn't to answer questions on this show. My job is to make you think. I do share my opinion, but I try and do it from a point of view of getting you to think of your opinion. But there is a very strong argument to say America got involved too late. And that if only America had got involved earlier, like one of the times Churchill's was begging America to get involved, that maybe the war wouldn't have been as catastrophic. That maybe people who had been died in the concentration camps or who had died through the wars or died through the conflict or died and lost all their property and were put in concentration camps without dying, they could have lived without that misery and suffering had America got involved earlier. With the situation I just raised, at what point do you get involved? Where's your line in the sand? Now, I want to be crystal clear about something because I know people are going to listen to this and say, John, this, that sounds like you're making an argument for America to get involved in Ukraine. I am not. I'm going to give you the some solutions, which not many other people will say, to America's foreign policy. Because it's rather disjointed, unless you understand history. I am not making an argument to get involved in Ukraine. I'm just presenting you with the facts and the evidence, and asking you, when should you get involved as a country? Because here's the thing I want. If John had a magic wand, would John wave his magic wand to get involved in Ukraine? No. My magic wand would be this. For us to actually start discussing the issues. For us to actually start having substantive debates. And that when our government acts, whether it's in America, or whether it's in Ireland, whether it's in England, or whether it's through the UN, or whether it's through NATO, or whatever organization it is acting, that we act and our people and our leaders and our politicians act after it has been discussed with the people and that we come together, even if whether we're right or whether we're wrong, but we have debated the best course forward and let the chips fall where they may then. Because right now, one of our problems that we need to address as a country and as a world is our politicians are making decisions without any debate without any oversight, without any recourse. And they're doing it in our name. 
and they are not making smart decisions. So what are my solutions to your foreign policy? Well, the first one was, let's have a conversation and define the difference between leader and power. The second one was, let's talk about American foreign policy and finding our line in the sand. And this is where I'm going to differ from a lot of people right now. we got to worry about stuff at home. No, I'm not going to start sounding all libertarian. I'm going to make the case for why this is important. And again, I will admit my full biases towards America when I say this. But I'm going to lay the groundwork for this by talking to you about a story from Canada. And I want you to think about what's going on in Canada right now. And I want you to give me your gut reaction when you hear the following statements. So many of you have probably been paying attention to the situation in Canada. You followed the story about the truckers. You followed all the stories about how Justin Trudeau has passed these emergency legislation and frozen bank accounts and tried to get involved in cryptocurrency and highlighting his ignorance. You've seen all the courts get involved. People have been arrested. People have been denied bail. One of the leaders this week was denied bail because, quote, the likelihood of her, the likelihood of her reoffending was high. All she did was protest her government. You saw all these stories. And then Ukraine broke this week. And what did Justin Trudeau come out and say? We are taking a stand. We stand with the people of Ukraine because, quote, there is no room for totalitarian governments in the modern world. What's your gut reaction when you hear that? When you hear all the situations that he has done to his own people, would you all the rhetoric of, well, we can't have MAGA rallies in Canada where these are all swastika-waving people. They're extremists. And then he comes out against Russia as a totalitarian state. If you're like me, your reaction was you just laughed and rolled your eyes really painfully. We need to get to the point where one of the biggest solutions is understanding the power of freedom. You see, one of the things they, I spoke about in the first segment about quality of leadership and the attributes of leaders was a vision. We have lost the power of rhetoric on our side. Whether that side is the right side, whether it's the constitutional side, or whether it's just people who believe in freedom. We have lost the power of rhetoric. You see, I openly admit my biases on this show, but I grew up, and one of the reasons I love America is because I see America as the beacon of hope and liberty for the world. While I would never use the word mascot as a term for the Statue of Liberty, for me, that is the closest word that has any meaning of what she is to America from my eyes. She is the mascot of America. When I think of America, I can't, I think of many things. But I also think of the Statue of Liberty because she is kind of like that mascot. 
even though I think it's a bit of a disrespectful term because she means so much more. A mascot, you think of a sports team or, you know, someone dressed as like a teddy bear or a, a wolf or a wolverine or a bear or something. You don't think of the Statue of Liberty. But I think she defines your nation perfectly. Where she's standing tall with her holding her principles really tight where she has her shackles on her ankles but they're broken and where she has the light of liberty and she is shining it for the rest of the world saying come follow me you know one of the things that i always get frustrated with is and this is more with my libertarian friends and those who say anytime i ask questions it sounds like i i sound like a hawk like, I want America to be involved in everything. I don't want America to be involved in everything when it comes to the military. But I do want America to be a voice. I do want America, I do yearn for the America that stands strong and stands proud and starts sharing the values and explains to the world why she changed the world, why she led to innovation, why she led to a 5,000-year leap that every country around the world has benefited from, but is also saying it in a humble way that says, you can have it too. Maybe this is my bias, but anyone who thinks that you look at conflicts and says, well, you know, if you were, dare want to get involved, you automatically mean sending the 101st Airborne over there and bombing them and invading them. No. Again, we need to remember our history. I'm going to share a story with you from your history, a story I've shared a couple of times, but it is one today you need to be reminded of. Rhetoric and principles win. Prove it, John. My pleasure. You see, Ronald Reagan in the 80s, whether you liked him or hated him, whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him, he was a unique kind of politician in the sense that on his major speeches, he wrote a large chunk of it. Sure, he had, he had staffers, but other politicians of the day and today especially use speechwriters. And today they use poll testers where the speechwriter will, will commission a report and say, I want you to go ring a 1,000 people or 2,000 people or 5,000 people and I want you to use ask these questions. And they'll give like three phrases, four phrases, and say which one sounds the best. And whichever the American people by ever who answers responds best to or has the most positive response or maybe the most negative response depending on what they've been poll tested on, that gets put in the speech. Ronald Reagan didn't do this. Ronald Reagan used the words and wrote the own words with his own pen, Mr. President, tear down this wall. But you see, you need to also have a backbone, you need to have a spine, and you need to have principles on your side. Because the biggest opposition to these simple words, the simple rhetoric, that can't be misconstrued or misunderstood, or, you know, fake news out there that he said something else, no. Those six little words changed the world. And the opposition didn't come from outside, it came from within. First, from the State Department. The State Department said, Mr. President, sir, we're begging you, do not say these words over in Europe. You don't understand the ramifications. He said, am I still president? Yes, sir, you are. Then put them in anyway. It went into the speech, it went out of the speech, it went into the speech, it went out of the speech. 
Long story short, it gets to the day of the event. Reagan is driving in his motorcade with his generals and he's reading the final draft of the speech. And yet again, those words are missing. And he says to his generals, where's the line? Sir, we're begging you, please don't say it. You don't understand the ramifications. Trust your military advisors. We know better than you. And he ad-libbed them on the day. And thank God he did. Because when he said, Mr. President, tear down this wall. The wall fell. Rhetoric wins. What's America's rhetoric right now? Both domestically and overseas. What does America stand for? What does America stand for? What does America mean? I don't say this out of joy. I say this out of sorrow and tears. But I look at your nation, our nation that I now live in, and I look around and as someone who knows your history, I can't tell you what America stands for. And in case anyone's listening and going, well, that's just an attack on Joe Biden. This is not a Joe Biden issue. This isn't a Donald Trump issue. This isn't a Barack Obama issue. This is an American issue for the last 5, 10, 20, 25 years. What does America stand for? Truth, justice, and the American way. When was the last time America really stood for that, either at home or abroad? Here's the biggest solution to our foreign policy issues. We got to find what we stand for as a country. I don't know if this will be unifying or not. Heck, even with my colleagues at the Blaze, I have a disagreement over this. The Blaze proudly stands with the Bill of Rights. I am a huge supporter of the Bill of Rights and I join my Blaze colleagues. I have many friends who call themselves constitutionalists. I am the guy who talks about the Constitution a lot. But neither of those are what you should stand for. You see, the way I always equate it is the Constitution is the house. And it's an amazing house. It's, it's a five-bedroom. It's got pools. It's got loads. Of, it's got big, you know, atriums. It's an amazing house. It's very aesthetically pleasing. You drive up to your house and you look at, my God, how amazing our house is. The Bill of Rights is everything internal. When you walk in, it's painted beautiful. It's got lovely pictures on the wall. You have your flat screen TV. You have all those hundreds of stations that you watch. You have your Netflix and your Amazon. You've got the most comfortable, luxurious bed. It literally feels like you are sleeping on clouds but you see as amazing that as that house is as amazing as all the things you have in it if your foundation sucks your house is worthless see i love the constitution and i love the bill of rights but for me what america needs to understand what america needs to stand for what america needs to start embracing and teaching once again is the declaration of independence because without the declaration of independence there is no america there is no constitution and there is no bill of rights 
You need to see what you stand for. But you also need to understand that we are living in a world that does not embrace freedom. I've seen many people ask this question this week. Why is Russia doing this now? And I've seen some people like including the Ben Shapiro, who I respect. I disagree with on several things, but I respect him. He's a thinker. He was like, this happened under Bush, this happened under Obama, and it's happening under Biden, but it didn't happen under Trump. There's a reason for it. And there is some credence to that idea that we have weak leaders right now. If you just compare the big tree leaders, quote unquote, from today to the 80s, when we were dealing with the Cold War, we had Ronald Reagan, we had Margaret Thatcher, and we had Pope John Paul. Look at that tree versus Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, and Pope Francis. We are in a world where leaders are weak and spineless and pathetic. But that is not the only reason this is happening now. The reason this is happening now is because freedom is weak. And tyranny is popular. COVID proved that. Look how many people believe they have a right to tell people what they should wear. Look around at the life of the last one year, five years, ten years, and compare all three. And ask yourself, is our world going towards more freedom or towards more government and totalitarian regimes? Or even if you don't like that, if you get offended by that. Because I asked that question to someone this week and I went, oh, you, you, you can't compare Ireland and England and Europe to, to the totalitarian regime of like Russia or China. Okay, let me ask you in another way. Are we becoming more free as people or are we becoming more reliant on government to tell others what to do? Answer that question. And here's where I back it up with some numbers. And if you want to solve America's foreign policies, I would suggest this is a great place to start. There's, a, there's an organization called Cato. And every year they release what they call their Human Freedom Index. And I don't put much credence in this. And I'll explain why with one stat. The reason I don't put much credence in it, it's always a good read and I always encourage people to read it. I'm not saying they should be banned or they should be, it shouldn't work, but I just don't put much credence in it and I'll explain why. 2008, 14 years ago, George Bush was still president. And now compare all the things that have happened since 2008 to today and ask yourself that question I asked you about freedom. Has freedom got weaker or has tyranny gotten stronger? And if so, by what percentage? Because according to this index, since 2008, freedom around the world has only gone down by 0.01 marks out of 10. You see, for my money, freedom around the world and around America and around the Western world and around everywhere has gone down a lot. We were way more freer, in my opinion, in 2008 than we were today. 
But going by their numbers, I want to, to explain why we have a freedom problem in our, in our world right now. And why this is happening in Ukraine. Because by their metrics, and they go through, and I would highly encourage you, if you want an interesting read, and you'll agree with some of it and you'll disagree with some of it. It's a really interesting read. Google the Human Freedex Index by, by Cato. But here's the problem that we have in our world right now. Here are the most freest countries in the top 10. And I'm going to issue them out one by one. The most free country, according to this index, is Switzerland. The second one is New Zealand. The third one is Denmark. The fourth one is Estonia. The fifth one is Ireland. The sixth one is a tie with Canada and Finland. The eighth is Australia. Ninth is Sweden. Tenth is Luxembourg. They're the top ten. Hardly a bastion of freedom. You see, whether you like America or not, and again, I want to be crystal clear when I say this, I don't mean militarily. When America and the world were freer, when Ronald Reagan was president, when America was a beacon for liberty around the world, it was because you were a superpower. You were a legit massive country. And when America spoke, everyone listened. And you made such an influence on the world. Can you even tell me who the Prime Minister of Switzerland is? Or who the head of state is? Can you tell me anything about Switzerland? New Zealand? Denmark? Estonia? Ireland? Canada? Finland? Australia? Can you tell me anything about these countries? But here's where I bring it even home further to you. Ireland, the fifth freest nation according to the Cato thing. Is that something we should celebrate or is that a problem? A nation where I used to live, a nation where for four and a half months I could not go more than three miles from my house. When that is the fifth freest nation in the world, does that tell you we are at the apex of freedom or that we are at the despair of tyranny? Canada, the sixth freest nation in the world, where there is truckers protesting because they are ticked off with COVID revelations. Because after two years of this pandemic, they have said, we have had enough. And the Canadian government says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to freeze your bank accounts. Does that strike you as the apex of freedom? Or more like the despotic despair of tyranny? Australia the eighth freest nation. A nation where you had police giving daily press conferences bragging about how many teenagers they arrested. Well, what was their crime? Was it rape? No. Was it assault? No. Well, well they're rowdy teenagers. They're probably out drinking and, you know, drunk and disorderly. No. Public indecency. They probably urinated everywhere. Nope. What did they do? They went to the beach with their friends to watch a sunset. And they bragged about how many fines they operated. Does that strike you as a free nation? Or does that strike you as a nation that's on the despair of tyranny? We go down the list and we go to number 14, the United Kingdom. And then in 15, there's a three-way tie. Germany, Japan, and America. We want to solve America's foreign policies. How about this? We restore America's unum. We work like hell 
to restore America's founding principles, to not reimagine them, not to discuss them, and have them open for debate, but we seek to reapply them, that we shared them with people, and we shared the meaning of them, that we shared the meaning of freedom. And we seek to reapply them and not rewrite them. And we make America number one on this list. Because I ask you one question. And I know I have some libertarian friends who are very uncomfortable listening to this show. That's why I've said this several times in it. It's literally for you. To those who think I want America to bomb other countries. Just imagine this for a situation. Where America is number the number one freest nation in the world, and where it is exporting its values of freedom, of liberty, of individual genius, of limited government around the world. Do you think the world will be more free or less free? Do you think we would have all these coronavirus restrictions? But do you think Putin would be on the march? And that we'd be on the verge maybe of a World War III. I'm not going to answer that because honestly there is no way you can answer that bar with your own opinion. You can only answer in opinion. We don't know. But do you think it's more likely or less likely? We need to get to a point where we restore America's family principles. Because here's the other reason. And I leave you with this. All those nations... They all seem like nice nations. I have nothing against Switzerland. Nothing against New Zealand. I don't even have anything against my own country, Ireland. I don't hate it. I never want to really go back. I'm glad I'm out of it. I'm so honoured to live in America. But all of those nations, Switzerland, New Zealand, Denmark, Estonia, Ireland, Canada, Finland, Australia, Sweden, Luxembourg, United Kingdom, Germany and Japan, all have one thing in common. They are all built on the laws of man. They are all built on popular opinion. Only one nation on that list, and on all the 170 odd countries they, they, they analyzed, is America. And that is the reason why you're exceptional. You're exceptional because you don't believe in government by popular opinion. You believe your government is not set up to give rights or take rights, but to fundamentally protect your God-given rights. That everyone has. Anything bar number one on this list should be considered a massive failure for us as Americans. For our nation. We should be number one. Not because we're better than everyone else. But because we are an exceptional nation. Because we change the world. Because our idea is unique. Is exceptional. And because if we start exporting our real values... Our world becomes freer. Our world becomes more prosperous. Our world becomes safer. And anyone who denies that, I want to share one last story with you. The power of a rhetoric. The power of a narrative. Your revolution. The American Revolution. You were a bunch of pilgrims, a bunch of peasants, a bunch of farmers. You didn't have shoes didn't have correct bedding, didn't have great food, had no training in many cases. You weren't even well equipped. Many of you didn't have muskets. And you went and fought the superpower of the day, the Hessians, the British, the United Kingdom, England, 
the redcoats, who were well-trained, well-armed. Not only did everyone have a musket, they also had cannons. They were well-dressed. Not one of them was missing shoes. In fact, they were so fancily dressed, we mocked them because of their red coats and their shiny lapel buttons. What made you go against the superpower today? Because on paper, you were supposed to be destroyed. Idea. Narrative. The idea of God-given rights. This idea of bringing basic first principles and nature's principles and man's law in accordance and closer to God's law. These principles worked. This rhetoric worked. Without this rhetoric, there is no America. What do you want to do? I'm going to be saying this to everyone I speak to and pretty much on every show for the rest of the year and probably for the next couple of years. We can solve our problems. The question is not whether we can or not. The question is, will we? We have the winning message. This is a message of freedom. The idea of America is the winning message. And we can turn our country around and the world around. question is, will we? Will we? I hope this show has given you something to think about. Please share it with a family and a friend. And we finish this show the way we always do, by saluting you, the American people. Never, ever forget the secret sauce of America. It's not Biden. It's not Trump. It's not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's not even CPAC. It's American people. America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.